across the country, there are over 400,000 children in the foster care system. And California wow. uh, has the highest number of children of all the states. We've got over 70,000. And in Orange County, um, we are up 10% uh, through the pandemic. Then pre-pandemic numbers at 3,450 is kind of right where we're hovering these days. That's Reagan Phillips, and this is the Powerful Ladies Podcast. Hey guys, I'm Cara Duffy, a business coach and entrepreneur on a mission to help you live your most extraordinary life by showing you anything is possible. People who have mastered freedom, ease, and success, who are living their best and most ridiculous lives, and who are changing the world are often people you've never heard of until now. It's shocking how many children are in foster care in the United States. Even more shocking are the statistics of how many children in foster care graduate from high school, end up in jail, or worse. That's why I'm so thankful that organizations working to save children from those statistics, such as CASA, exist. Today's guests are Reagan Phillips, CEO of CASA Orange County, and Nancy Eden, a local CASA advocate and fundraiser. Get ready to learn what's really happening in foster care, how we can save those children, and how incredible the women who are doing the work really are. I am so honored to have you guys here today. Uh, this, What we're going to talk about today is a topic that uh, I care about, I have questions about, I know how much it matters to you guys, and I can't wait for the audience to hear about it. Um, so I have so many questions and things I want to say, but let's jump in first by please introduce yourself, where you are in the world, and what you're up to. And since Nancy's been a guest before, I'm going to ask Reagan for you to start. <laughs> Okay. Well, very, uh, very nice. I wasn't aware that Nancy had previously been a guest. That's very exciting. Um, my name is Reagan Phillips. I am, I, I mean, in terms of where I am in the world, I'm coming to you from uh, Santa Ana, California, uh, <laughs> right near where our uh, headquarters are located. I'm, I'm at home currently, but uh, I don't live far from our office. Um, I am the CEO for CASA of Orange County. CASA stands for Court Appointed Special Advocates. And ours is a nonprofit that is empowered by the juvenile court uh, to create uh, wonderful, meaningful connections between uh, amazingly big-hearted volunteers in our community and children that are in the foster care system. Um, and Nancy is one of those uh, amazing volunteers. And yeah. Nancy, please tell everyone about you, your name, where you are, what you're up to. Hi, Kara. Thank you for having us on today. Really appreciate that. My name is Nancy Eaton, and I live in Orange County, California. Uh, I've lived here for 38 years or so, and I became interested in volunteering for CASA um, a long time ago. I'm going to say 15 years. I don't know what the real number is, because it's like all comes together, but um, I have been, on, been doing fundraising for a while, and I really found myself wanting to connect to the organization and really find out how they train people, what the process was, how good were we, what was the what was the deal? So I put myself in a training for 30, it was 30 hours then. Um, I worked, I, I, think it, I think I did it like back to back, Reagan. It was like really great. But I went ahead and completed that process and became an advocate 
and was um, paired with a foster youth in 2016. And um, Liz is still in my life today. She's actually, you know, just really become part of our family. She's out of the system. She's doing so well, and I'm so proud of her. Um, yeah, I just love what I do with Casa. It makes my heart sing. It has been the most important job I've ever had in my life and the most rewarding. And I can't say enough about being a volunteer for CASA and being an advocate. Thank you. No, what a beautiful introduction from both of you. So I think we need to dive into more of what is CASA and how does it work? And, you know, some realities of the foster system as well, because unless like I've learned so much by being friends with you, Nancy, and I learned even more by attending uh, CASA introduction and going to Richard's graduation ceremony, uh, your husband, who's also an advocate. And I was shocked at how uh, the gaps that are there and the realities of the foster system in the U.S. and in California. So maybe we just laid the groundwork of what are some of those realities so, so everyone listening can understand. Children in the foster care system and the whole uh, sort of epidemic of uh, child uh, neglect and maltreatment is really something that I think a lot of people don't know about and, and don't talk about it, not just because the circumstances are, are such that these matters are highly confidential. They're happening um, as they should be. Uh, they're happening in, in closed session court where, you know, you have to be affiliated with the matter to, to gain access um, to the proceedings. This is not, you know, a, a matter of public consumption. Um, but I think sometimes as a result, folks don't really fully understand the gravity of the situation, the frequency with which this is happening. Um, and I think sometimes also kids that are in the foster care system end up getting a bad reputation, so to speak, because there's somehow there's a there's a conflation between kids that are in dependency and kids that are in delinquency. Sometimes there there's overlap, but certainly the children that are in the foster care system are there because uh, you know they have been a victim of 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 their circumstances. It's it's through no fault of their own. They have experienced some kind of abuse, neglect, abandonment. Um, at the hands of the people that are supposed to be providing care for them and uh, such that it's uh, required the intervention of the court and social services to assess the, the severity of the circumstances to, to determine whether or not they are, um, you know, safe with their, with their parents um, or with the home that they came from. And um, to determine, first and foremost, whether reunification is possible, that is the, the primary goal also of dependency, is to ultimately reunify that family safely and appropriately if possible. Um, sadly, it's not always possible. Um, and so we end up having this overwhelm of children that remain in the system many times until they can emancipate or become uh, an adult and are no longer eligible for services. Uh, across the country, there are over 400,000 children in the foster care system. And California wow. uh, has the highest number of children of all the states. We've got over 70,000. And in Orange County, um, we are up 10% uh, through the pandemic than pre-pandemic numbers at 3,450 is kind of right where we're uh, hovering these days. It's uh, It's... I think also just being in this community, this this Orange County community that's generally regarded as being affluent and, you know, folks don't realize how prevalent the, the circumstances are here as well. Well, I, 
I tell you all the time that Orange County regularly ranks as the highest income disparity county in the U.S. And if you just go to the beach, you're not going to see it. Um, why does California have the most kids in foster care? Because that could be a good thing. Like we're, we're helping people who need the help and, and more proactive about um, being a stand for kids. Or it could lean, it could you know, be correlated to something else. So what's, what's your take on why California ranks so high? I think it's just the the population. I think it's a numbers, a numbers issue. We have a, a, you know, obviously a lot of people living here and, um, the more people you have, the more families you have, the more, uh, likely that you're going to be affected in some way or have some sort of interaction with the system. So I, I think it's really a numbers game. I also think that in many cases, um, there are, underlying reasons uh, for that removal that, that may, uh, you know, mental, I, I mean, there are horrific stories of, uh, that, you know, I'm, I'm sure Nancy has heard. I certainly have borne witness to, I'm, I'm an attorney by trade. I started my career representing children in foster care and I've seen, I've seen quite a lot. Um, you can't make up some of the circumstances that drive kids into care. It's really, truly awful. Um, but not, it's not always a circumstance that um, I think folks tend to think about a really horrific abuse, um, physical or sexual abuse type of situation. Sometimes, you know, it's the struggles of that socioeconomic disparity, the mental illness, um, you know, there, there may be substance abuse at play. There are other issues that um, then I think uh, factor into the underlying uh, problems that the family is facing. Oftentimes those are obstacles and then make it more difficult to successfully complete reunification services. And I would argue, you, you, you said that it might be good that there's so many kids in California that are in the system. I don't know that it's a great alternative. It is the only alternative that we have. And yeah. as someone who has been close uh, with the system, I can tell you, nobody goes into this line of work as an attorney, as a social worker, because they don't care. They absolutely care. But the overwhelm and the burden on the system is... Tremendous. I had 500 kids on my caseload alone as an attorney. Um, that's untenable and unethical, yeah. <laughs> frankly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, that's that's too many. You can't do a, a good job. The, the the CASA program and the fact that we can partner these individual volunteers who are choosing to be there and choosing to forge a relationship with a child one on one, and and in some CASA programs it may not be one on one. For Orange County, it it's absolutely a priority for us. Um, that level of personalized attention and advocacy is a game changer um, in terms of their experience with the system. And Nancy's experience with Elizabeth is is an absolute testament to that. Yeah. And um, for everyone listening who doesn't know the full side of it, right? Like when you have a, um, when you're connected to a CASA child, it's really private, as you mentioned earlier, right? Like you that you have to hang out with them one-on-one like no one else involved like you're not talking about them else like it's very private for that casa so the fact that we can reference elizabeth now is because she's aged out and now if she and nancy get to have a regular you know friend relationship um which i think is really great that 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 exists i've had the pleasure of meeting elizabeth and she's awesome um and i i really get enjoy that i get to share the pride with nancy of like what she's taking on now like it's knowing that a, a friend is um, acting as a CASA advocate 
and has all this like joy and pride that they want to share about their Casa kid and like they can't um, was really interesting to watch because Nancy would just be like, she's so great. I can't wait. To... <laughs> um, but it's it's also, you know, there's the so heartbreaking, this, this entire conversation of just how many kids are in need uh, in Orange County alone, let alone California and the U.S. What's the percentage of, of kids who go into foster care that do get um, reunited with their parents or guardians versus those that don't? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, it's, it's actually a pretty low number. Uh, while that's certainly the goal at the outset of, of the process, um, and depending on the age of the child, what you know, the sibling structure, and whether or not they've been in the system before, um, there's there's generally a, a, a predilection towards giving those, if not a statutory requirement, that those reunification services are afforded. Um, but the reunification rates are pretty low. I would hesitate to, to put a statistic on it because I'm not confident mm-hmm. about it. But I would say, I mean, it's 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 well below fifty percent, mm-hmm. probably closer to. I mean, I would imagine it's below 30%. Um, so we're talking about a, a lot of children that are not um, going to be um, having that successful reunification. And it may take, and even if they do, it may take years before it really uh, can happen, whether it's a reunification with their family of origin or it's an adoption or other permanent type of um, outcome with a, a guardian, a legal guardian um, outside of the system. So, yeah. So the, that number includes people adopted out of the system. Well, and that's why I'm hesitant. I I, yeah. I actually should have a, a better statistic on this. I'm not confident, and so I hesitate to give it. Reunification totally efforts are 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 low, but um, reunification success is, is low. But um, it is. It, I mean, you, I I know that the number of successful outcomes coming out of the system are not mm-hmm. as high as we would like them to be. Yeah. You know, um, Richard's um, Casa Kid um, reunified with his family. And it was a, there was maybe four or five kids in the family, and they ended up reunifying with the dad, not the mom. But that was interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then all your thoughts and feelings of the Casa, and is this the right thing or is it the wrong thing? You know, you're giving input and what you see and how they decide that how that happens and it you know it did it it took a long time i think he was um yeah in foster care for a while what do you wish people knew about casa that that people probably don't what do you wish they knew Uh, i'll just jump right in on that but i just i just really want people to be inspired to volunteer some of their life to make a difference for other people and if we as advocates get our job done and do what we can to guide a young person through that part of their life. The, I mean, it, it's like a great, it's huge that a, a kid becomes an adult and they are successful in the world, but also what it means to our community, not to have a kid on the streets suffering, pinning that, you know, paycheck to paycheck. Maybe if they have a job, they're not homeless. It's just exponential how the community is positively impacted by your volunteering your time and your energy and you know sharing your heart with somebody it's really uh, that's what i would want people to know like what a difference you can make 
And and Nancy, maybe you'll explain a little bit more of like what it really is like to be a CASA. Like how much time is it? Like I think the <sighs> closest correlation people have listening probably is like a big brother, big sister program. And right. it's very different. So what does it mean to be an advocate? I can tell you what it meant for me. I think it really is determined by the age of the child and what's going on with them and how involved you need to be. I spent um, at least two to three days a month with Lizbeth and I would pick her up from school. We would um, do any errands that she needed to do. We'd have um, some kind of dinner at our, well, usually we ate at one place. <laughs> it's our favorite place right by our school. Um, and then, you know, we would talk. We would just spend one-on-one -on -one time talking about what's up, what's next, what do we need to make happen, um, any issues she had in her group home or where she was living. Um, but I would um, text, we'd um, communicate between sessions that we would work together. Um, and that's like the time commitment. Uh, mm -hmm. She lives about... Uh, 10 miles up the road from me and but it's like at the three o'clock time you'd have to be at school you know i felt like a, a mom again going to pick up the school and <laughs> i'd have to be there on time and the most important thing for me was to be on time and be there every time i said i would be and so i'd start out like an hour ahead of time <laughs> just to make sure i made it happen um but i mean that's kind of the time thing but as far as the emotional investment it's pretty um, you know, there was some stuff that, you know, we had conversations about. Um, we have just, we really broke things down and like talked about real, real issues for her. And, you know, that's, that's an emotional uh, connection that you're making and it's give and take because she's like, she was great. And she gave back to me too. And, you know, her appreciation and her how grateful she was to be with me and um, gosh, I can't say enough about that. Um, she's smart and that was just, you know, it was just, I, I lost my train of thought because that's where I go when I'm <laughs> talking about her. But um, um, I spent a lot of time also working with like the teachers if something wasn't going wrong. And I'd work, I'd, like the social workers and like there was different people in her community that needed to, I needed to talk to. So I was finding out who they were, giving them a call, calling them back, blah, blah, blah. And so that's a little bit of effort in, in getting in there and work to do. Um, Elizabeth was really pretty easy. I, I don't think she was a typical person. I don't know, maybe she is. Um, yeah, that's kind of it. Did it leave anything out? Well, I guess my question to Reagan is like, how, how does Nancy's experience working with a teenager vary than a CASA advocate for someone who is in middle school or grade school or even, um, you know, under five? Yeah, so um, there are children that are in the foster care system um, and they range between age, I mean, birth essentially and uh, up to 18. And if you have been in the foster care system before the age of 18 for any period of time, you're able actually then at that point to elect to remain until the age of 21 um, and then thereby be entitled to additional support and, and benefits, which um, is some, you know, maybe 10 year old legislation um, uh, and a nice benefit. I think Elizabeth took advantage of that, I believe. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, we are seeing an increase of kids with CASA who are uh taking advantage of that opportunity because not all kids do. And I would say that the bulk of the kids uh, that, that our program works with 
fall into that 13 to 15 age range. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the overwhelming uh, demographic that we get uh, referred. And that's typically, I think, consistent with kids that are probably at that stage, where they're not likely to be reunified. They're probably not likely to be on an adoption track. And so now it's really a lot of uh, that time and effort with the CASA going into preparing for independent living, um, mm-hmm. identifying different resources, keeping them on track for school and focused on, you know, kind of what lies ahead and how to, to be prepared for that. Um, so, but that's not to say that we don't have CASAs that work with children that are younger than that or older than that. That definitely seems to be kind of our our sweet spot in terms of the the referrals that we get. Um, so yeah, sometimes these outings look like going, you know, to the park and going to, we have a lot of community partners that will give us tickets and museum, you know, uh, offerings. We have a great partnership with OC Parks and we try to provide opportunities and as much as we're able for these advocates and youth to do fun things together. So it's one less thing for the advocate to have to worry about planning and prepping and paying for, because we also have a dollar limit that we put on their spend when they're together, um, which is also a little tricky here in Orange County. It's a $25 spend. So, um, so it just depends. It really all depends on that child and on what they like and what their needs are and what the advocate is is able and willing to do to help um, satisfy that. I did want to just add on in terms of the commitment and 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 Nancy articulated beautifully the the way that the relationship looks once you get started. I will say that you know we ask a lot of the volunteers that's a big a big distinction between as you mentioned uh, casa and a big brothers big sisters for example is not just that advocacy piece the the opportunity that we have to let our volunteers participate in the court proceedings and be a trusted and reliable source of information from all the professionals on that team to include the judge teachers therapists social workers everybody's interested in the in the casa's point of view but we do put them through a pretty significant training process on the front end. Um, that's 34 hours of training. Um, I think that's up from when you went through it, Nancy, right. um, even just uh, a few more hours because we've got that mandatory reporter stuff. It's a lot. And, um, you know, during the pandemic, it's been a little bit easier because we've offered that through Zoom and, mm-hmm. you know, we didn't uh, have it in person. But pre-pandemic, that was all in-person evenings, weekends. Um, we do a pretty um, thorough screening process. We obviously want to make sure that everyone's background checked and vetted and we do in, uh, interviews and and all of that references. So um, we really want to make sure that we're connecting, you know, appropriate people with the most vulnerable children in our community. So um, it can be a little daunting on the front end. But what I love about Nancy's explanation is that once you get past all that, um, you know, it is, it is a lot more rewarding and it isn't as time consuming as it might seem at the front end. So. Yeah. Like Nancy forgot all of it because she was just so excited <laughs> about her time with Lisa. <laughs> like childbirth. Which is great. You know? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> I think it's also um, important to, to speak to the statistics of, of what happens for kids who are in foster care. Um, the, you know, when they're adults, the increased rates of homelessness or um, jail time, all of the things, low um, employment status, there's a lot of things that impact 
statistically, when you're a foster kid, what are some of those? And how does having a CASA change those statistics? And sorry, I keep asking about statistics, but I think like the numbers (laughs) matter so much in this conversation because it's, every time I hear them, it's like a wow factor. And any number that we need to like put in the show notes or have me talk about later when this is going to air, no problem. I can like put a note into for some fact checking. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, on a personal level, I'll let Reagan quote the, the, the percentages, but on a personal level, uh, Liz and I would always have conversations about when to start a family. And when like, so we'd have these full on like money conversations about what it takes to have a baby and, and support them. And what it takes, you know, emotionally, like, and that was one of the things that I think really hit home for her to really put that decision off until she's ready, emotionally, financially, everything. Um, and it, it worked, you know, she, that I think it made a big impact on her to delay that decision to be a mom. When I can understand, you know, going through a system where you want to be loved so badly, that it sounds like a solution to create something that has to love you. (laughs) Right. Well, and I think to the extent that you haven't received, been the recipient of that sort of unconditional love and support, that does seem like the immediate or most automatic solution to something like that. And of course, these children often not realizing that, you know, it's exactly the opposite that this is where you've got to put all of your love and time and attention into someone that really needs you um you know and we do see a lot of recidivism and uh, you know minor mothers children going through the system who are now mm-hmm. in it not just uh, as through their own dependency but because they've now had a child and, and expose their child to the um you know, needing the support of of the system as well. So um, it's it's fairly common. Um, and, and in terms of the other statistics, yeah, it's it, it, it does look rather bleak. You know, when you look at the numbers, um, there's there's really really glaring statistics about um, you know the the kind of moving from system to system. The dependencies, the mm-hmm. foster care system is often referred to a pipeline uh, referred to as a pipeline to prison. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not a joke because there's actually statistics that it, up to 80% of the California prison population has spent some time in foster care. Um, so, you know, that is mm-hmm. really uh, says a lot just in terms of um, that crossover, that youth that crossover from dependency mm-hmm. to delinquency to it becoming you know, sort of a lifetime in some system or another. Um, I think it's one out of four kids that um, uh, um, emancipate from the system or age out uh, will be homeless within, you know, the next year to two years. Uh, it's real. And then the high school graduation rate for California foster youth is uh, 48%. Um, because CASA works with the child uh, exclusively under the... Um, you know, it's, we're a codified part of the welfare and institution system. So our work with them is done during their time uh, within the dependency system. Um, we don't have a lot of, we have a lot of anecdotal information about what happens yeah. after the fact, because a lot of our volunteers will continue to stay in touch, not only with that youth, but with us as well. Mm-hmm. So we've got a lot of wonderful stories and examples of you know, like, like Nancy's of, of, uh, youth who have gone on to do great things, graduate, get jobs and start their family. And lots of advocates who 
have been a part of that process, been, you know, stood up for them in their wedding as a best man, um, even, mm-hmm. and, and, and been a part of all of those special processes. But I will tell you that the high school graduation rate, the bleak 48% graduation rate for children in the foster care system jumps to 93% when you put a CASA on the case. And so what it's I think amazing. that that does, it's, it's amazing. I mean, it's, it's truly amazing. What I think that, yeah, it's, I mean, it, it truly is. But what I think the, the power of that, you know, single statistic is that you can extrapolate something that powerful into just about every other facet of their life, even if we don't have hard statistics on those things. And, you know, oftentimes I'll get asked, what does success look like, you know, for these kids? And it's really, really tough to answer that question because there is no one definition of success for these children. Um, Certainly we want to be able to, you know, open their eyes to all the possibilities um, and their own uh, intellect and confidence and tap into that uh, for themselves, knowing that they have a cheerleader and someone who's going to be there to to support them through it. But for some of these kids, it success might mean, you know, getting up and going to school in the morning. Um, mm-hmm. It might look drastically different. And so, you know, every case is very different and we want to make sure that we're, we're really addressing the unique needs of that, of that youth um, with uh, every hope and opportunity that they can come out of the system as an independent, self-sufficient, contributing member of society. I was so struck when I went to the introduction to be an ACASA advocate that Nancy hosted at her house. And uh, I think it was, was it Miguel who was there, Nancy? Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But he, he shared a story of um, the child in foster care who was CASA taught him that how to deposit his checks. Like he had a box full of checks and he's like, I haven't been getting paid. And they were like, what? <laughs> and realized that this child was never taught how you get paid, like how you deposit checks, what banking system looks like. And I've had um, Christy Dinsmore on the podcast, who's the a co-founder of Reevolution, which is helping um, kids leaving uh, incarceration and reintegrating mm-hmm. to society. And usually they've been in jail since they were young, 18 at the oldest and often younger. And she shared a very similar story of how part of the programming they offer is just teaching them how to do um, normal functioning things that we forget that someone had to teach us. Um, And it's, you you know, there's so many things that if no one tells you, you just don't know they exist because they don't show up in your world. Um, And so that, that story always stays with me. It's like, okay, well, if they don't know about banking and how to get, you know, get paid, then they probably don't know about how to, you know, what you do to go to the dentist or to make doctor's appointments or how to interview or apply for jobs or, you know, even just, you know, how you show up for, for etiquette at a place so that you, you, um, can be an adult and fit into some of these scenarios that might be outside of your scope. Um, like even myself growing up in new England, I'm so happy that we were forced to go to like a etiquette class one day. Because you show up at places and you're like, that's a lot of forks and I'm, I've never even seen silverware. So like of this fancy. So now what? That's a great, that's a great project here. We could do cotillion. <laughs> we can do a cotillion yep. for foster kids. Like where's that, what's the etiquette? Where's your napkin? Where's your, where, how do you do this? And where do you sit? And do you pull the chair out? <laughs> the whole thing. I like that. Yeah. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. 
We've ha- yeah. actually had one of those dinners before. We used to have an annual dinner at Five Crowns. They would host a dinner and we would be able to send some kids and they would have that experience of learning mm-hmm. all of that. Actually, on, on site uh, at Casa, at our headquarters, we have a, a small kitchen um, and uh, oftentimes the advocates will come in with the youth and that's where they'll teach them how to make spaghetti and, mm-hmm. you know, cook basic, you know, sort of meals and bake together. And we have a little table right outside. I mean, it's there for staff, you know, mm-hmm. anyway, but but we open it up and, of course, always get very excited when advocates come in with the youth to do this on site because it's a real treat, especially when they make something delicious and then they come around and share. Um, <laughs> but I've seen them sit outside at that table and and bring all the utensils and all of the, you know, place setting and set them up and, and, and then sit and enjoy their meal and have that little mini etiquette mm-hmm. class, just the two of them, just to learn those things. But I mean, even just to acknowledge that, you know, learning about banking a check or uh, depositing checks and, and banking and etiquette. I mean, there are even circumstances that I, I mean, that you, you, would, you wouldn't believe. One of my most, most memorable um, uh, cases that we've, we've had come through was when we matched up um, one of our advocates who had grown up with a deaf mute uh, sibling, and so she was fluent in sign language. And there was a young man who had been at a group home for a period of time, and and he was had many behavioral issues. He was non-communicative, non-verbal, um, struggling in school, really had a tough time. Never formally diagnosed in any particular meaningful way. Um, and she was welcomed as the advocate onto this group home site and said, well, you know, we, you can't go off site with this young man. He's very dangerous. He's harmful to himself. He's, 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 you've got to stay on site where we can see you in this room. And I mean, he was essentially a prisoner on this, you know, property, mm-hmm. not being allowed to do things through time, patience, consistency, and creativity. She started teaching him using some of the signs that she had used with her sibling and showing him pictures and realizing that he was very receptive and was able mm-hmm. to learn and understand and communicate with her. And she advocated to get permission to take him off site so that she could expose him to more things and more mm-hmm. um, words, thereby increasing mm-hmm. his language. And then she went to his school and, and got on his IEP team and started advocating for him in the classroom. He was a deaf mute person who had never, no one had taken the time to even try to understand that this was something that he was struggling. Of course, he had behavioral issues. Of course, yeah. he was violent and acting out. And of course, he was dangerous um, and depressed. This so woman, Miller, <laughs> right? But but mm-hmm. but no one, and and every school has an obligation to pay attention and to offer services. But mm-hmm. you have to have an advocate. You have to have someone who is raising the flag and saying, "We got we got yeah. something here," and someone who has willing to ask questions and get curious and, and be creative about exploring options. And this woman single-handedly changed his life. He can communicate. He has friends. He plays on a, you know, a special Olympics basketball team. He, he has a completely different life because Mm -hmm. of her. Like it's, it will make me cry. It's just, you know, there's Mm -hmm. so many things that these advocates do. It is just unbelievable to me through that patience and that willingness to to be there for someone else and to to ask questions that's all yeah and and so often so often when we talk about you know our country being divided or 
the world being divided into individual countries, whenever you talk to people, usually they say we should take care of kids. That's a universal human thing. Wherever you show up, people want to have good food and have a dinner together and they want to take care of their family, their kids, their elderly. Like it, it's just part of the human experience. And this is such an opportunity for people to really step into that in a bigger way because there are so many kids who need it. Yeah. And the fact that, yes, there's hours to do the training and make it happen, but once you're in that space, like you get to go meet an incredible human that you don't know yet. Um, so obviously there's lots of compelling reasons to become, to work with CASA, to volunteer, to donate, to become an advocate yourself. Um, but I'm really curious, and I'm going to start with Reagan, of how did you end up in CASA? Was this something, if you go back to eight-year-old you, would you imagine that this is what your life has been dedicated to? Or does it surprise you where you've landed? I don't know that eight-year-old me would have uh, comprehended any of this. Um, but I will say, and I don't, I don't know what exactly it was that really... Um, f- you know, compelled me to pursue uh, advocacy for children. But I will say that it's been a part of my background for, uh, you know, as long as I've been kind of an adult, adulting person. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I, I my origin story with Casa goes back to me having an internship when I was in graduate school in New York City and spending that second year at Casa. Uh, and, and, Really getting a hands-on, eye-opening uh, mm-hmm. approach to what the needs are in the system and how dramatic the need is, and being, I think, in that setting in in New York City and all casas, you know, there's there's about 950 chapters across the United States. They all operate a little bit differently. Um, but it's this basic premise, same basic premise across. And so I was frequently in the courtroom on behalf of uh, the CASA volunteers who were unable to attend. And it was shocking to me that these attorneys that were supposed to be representing the kids did not know, you know, a lot about what was going on. I often felt like I was the the one who had the most information to share or the most uh, accurate uh, understanding of the circumstances of the case. Um, and here I was just this little intern, you know, <laughs> and I thought to myself, oh, I'm, you know, I, I feel like I could advocate in a larger, better way um, than these attorneys, you know, that are, that don't seem to really, that was a lot of apathy. So yeah. off I went on my journey to become this attorney who with these letters behind my name would somehow be a better, stronger, more important advocate. Um, only to go through that whole process. Um, I dedicated, you know, came back to Orange County, dedicated um, a lot of my non-class uh, learning time to working as an investigator here with Miners Council and still being pretty close up and personal with it, only to get a rude awakening upon, you know, stepping into that courtroom and getting assigned 500 cases to realize there wasn't really apathy that I was under, you know, um, receiving or, or, yeah, it was just that overwhelm. So, um, you know, during my time as an attorney uh, representing kids here, I uh, regularly sought out my CASA volunteers, uh, referred as many cases as I could to get one because I just truly valued 
um, the service that they provide and the information. Um, they were a member of the team, certainly someone I relied upon. I served on the board for a period of time, the governing board uh, of directors here in Orange County, got a little bit closer to the organization, saw some of the fundraising components, and you really got to look at it as a larger uh, entity. And um, uh, gosh, it's now going to be seven years in in July, which is really hard to believe that I've been a part of the organization from the staff side, um, first running programs, and then ultimately overseeing the entire uh, enterprise. And um, it's just one of those things that I feel like once you know about this issue, mm-hmm. once you know about this need, you can't not know it. You mm-hmm. can't, you can't not see it anyway. Like it's there and you've, you've, I, it just kind of gets it under your skin and in your blood. And I, I can't relate um, to these children. I, I had a wonderful childhood and I had wonderful parents and all of my needs um, basic and otherwise were always met. Um, but I also know that I didn't do anything to deserve that. Um, it was a circumstance uh, of my of birth lottery, right? And just, <laughs> I look at these kids and kind of recognize the same thing in them. And I also just feel that if people aren't compelled to this cause because of the heartstrings uh, uh, behind it, um, at the end of the day, we're paying for all of these kids anyway. And if we can get in there and intervene in an earlier stage, um, the better off we are in, in keeping them out of other government-run systems for the long haul. Yeah, amazing. So, yeah. And and Nancy, how did you get first introduced to CASA? Um, through fundraising and uh, friends, uh, parent parent friends of our children um, were very active and very enrolling. And she said, can you help? And I said, of course I can. And I was off and running at that point. And prior to that, back in, I don't know, so long ago, I went to an event uh, that was a CASA thing and really was touched, moved, and inspired. And then I was in my mm-hmm. 20s, I think. So <laughs> um, I circled back and um, immediately started um, working on fundraising and getting auction items and working with the, this committee and doing all the things that, CASA needs done in order to get their job done. Because if we don't fundraise, we're not going to have volunteers. We're not going to have people to support the volunteers. So it's always been uh, for something on my plate that I love to do because I know what effect it has down the line and yeah. always going to raise my hand to do whatever I can. Um, so I just raised my hand, got moved and inspired, turned on and, and lit up. And I always will be that way. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, this is the Powerful Ladies podcast, so I would love to know what both of you think of the words powerful and ladies. Are their definitions different when those words are separate? And does the definition does the definition change for you when they're next to each other? Hmm. I take on power at powerful as a, um, not an aggressive word, but as um, using what you have to the best benefit and in a way that makes a difference and when you're you know sourced i have an incredible husband who you know just makes stuff happen and anytime i need anything's right there and if i'm off he's just like okay what are you up to what are you committed to and where are you going to use your power today and pretty much i think being powerful is amazing 
in the right place. And I always want to be that and have that. And it's my goal to be a powerful lady um, <laughs> together or apart. <laughs> yeah. And I think that there are no uh, more powerful ladies than, than, than that one right there, that Nancy mm-hmm. Eaton. She is... <laughs> really, really just tremendous. And a, and a, a, a really great example of, of what it means to be a powerful lady in this community. Mm-hmm. Um, I, yeah. I love Nancy's definition. I do think it's about using what you've got and finding a way to, um, to do good, to, to use your skill set and your, your knowledge and your experience, good, bad, and different. Um, but to channel that into something that can make a difference. Um, and I think women are inherently um, skilled at doing that. Um, and so I love that you're shining a light on it. Yeah. Well, I think it's no no surprise that more and more women are putting themselves in entrepreneurship roles or in corporate roles where they get to really lead with their heart and kind of mm-hmm. change what leadership and power looks like. Um I ha- like I see such a shift from when I first started in the corporate world and so many of the female leadership was very much mimicking a masculine style of leadership because there was no other example. Mm. And it's been really amazing to see that pivot where a lot of what was you know, a faux pas in a in a business setting is starting to shift. I think because more and more women realize like we're leaving half of ourselves, if not more, outside of this environment. And there's so many holistic 360 skills that we could be bringing to the table. Um, And I also know that women are notoriously and stereotypically and statistically bad at giving themselves credit. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. I ask everyone on the podcast where you put yourself on the powerful lady scale if zero is average everyday human and 10 is the most powerful lady you can imagine, um, where would you put yourself mm-hmm. on that scale and today and, and on average? <laughs> wow. That's an interesting question. And I think especially in light of the, the your reference to the fact that women are, um, I think, very likely or unlikely to give themselves credit. I think it would be really interesting to know how women generally respond on this podcast to that. Um, because I'm excited to dump all that, all the statistics from every episode to some psychologist to like do the the full study because it's fascinating to me hearing all the answers. Yeah. Well, I've been listening to the inquiry about the um, Chief Justice. Um, yes. And so we, I mean, Katanji. when I think of a powerful lady, um, I'm thinking about her. She's like an 11, right? And if not a 20 after her patience and calm and collectiveness. Yeah. So, yeah. So she's a 20. I'm going to put myself at a seven because I got some, I got some work to do. I'm still working. Love it. I love that too. I love that too, Nancy. I mean, I'm thinking about this and I think I'm, I'm always, not that I'm not capable of looking at all of the great and all of the, 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 the wonderful things that I feel like I can accomplish in a day, let alone, you know, over the course of a lifetime. Um, I tend to always focus on where I fall short and what I didn't 
get done. And that's where the attempt, which is so awful, because I would never want to do that to my children or to anybody else. But that's where my my uh, default goes. I like your number seven. I think that that's a pretty reasonable number. I would have probably, you know, uh, gone to a six, but I'm going to bump it up because I like that. <laughs> and and I will tell you that stepping into leadership um, at Casa, you know, I I didn't intend to be necessarily in a leadership role here. I've mm-hmm. sort of fallen into it. And I think maybe as a result of that, or maybe, I, I don't know, I don't know what it is, but I, I definitely feel like I brought, because I don't know any other way to be an authentic yeah. way of being into that environment. I was, I'm, I'm a, I'm a mother first and foremost. Mm-hmm. I have got, you know, three children and one of them was quite little when I started. Um, they're all, I mean, he's still little, but he was, I mean, really little when I started. And I don't cross some magical threshold and all of a sudden mm-hmm. not have those priorities. I am, I am who I am everywhere I go. And that includes, by the way, my commitment to this organization. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not like I walk the other side of the threshold and the light, turn the lights off and I'm no longer there. It's with me. It's, but work is, it's not a place you go. It's, it's, it's what you do and it's, it's with you always. And, and I think that it's a motto that was instilled in me by my, my parents growing up. Um, you are the work. It's not a place you go. You are the work. And it really translated well over these past couple of years as we were working from home. But um, as I tried to explain to people, maybe they understood that better. But um, yeah, I think it's really, really critical and, and lovely to see uh, female leaders bringing that into um, different workplaces. And that is one thing that I do feel particularly proud of is that I have a lot of young, younger women and mothers and all kinds of women that work at CASA who have been, I think, very happy to know that um, they don't have... I mean, there's a children's advocacy organization for, yeah. <laughs> for crying out loud. Of course, we're going to prioritize your own yeah. family and your own children. And that's, you know, there's a balance mm-hmm. with everything, but but that always is going to come first. And I don't, you shouldn't feel bad about it. And you shouldn't feel mm-hmm. like you can't own that and express it and 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 live authentically and holistically um, in and through your work. So um, I appreciate you raising that because it's definitely a challenge and one that we continue to navigate. When I, can I like your seven too. <laughs> I like seven. seven too. And I, I like the, the gap the, between the seven and the 20. <laughs> the gap yes. living in that is very um, empowering for me. It's like, wow there's the gap and here I'm going to go fill it. So it's, it's, yeah, it's not a problem for me to be a seven member. (laughs) You know, I, from the outside looking in, when I think about the work that you guys do on a daily basis, you know, I think about, wow, like one, you must take actions that feel brave on a regular basis to be a stand for the, for the commitments you have for, these kids and, and what they're going through. And at the same time, like you must be Jedi masters at how you deal with the emotional weight that you can't help but absorb in these topics Mm. and in the, in knowing what you know. So it's a two-part question of how often do you feel like you have to be brave and step into a bigger space than you maybe thought you were prepared for? And then second is how do you Make sure that you're taking care of yourself and your own mental health and 
making sure that you aren't just filling a backpack full of like every horrible thing that you've heard in on this journey. Yeah. Well, well, um, good questions. Um, you know, I think that a question I got asked a lot when I started practicing in this area, uh, and would tell people what I did every day, especially practicing at this point, I'm not in it. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm not frontline. Yeah. I get to, I often tell people the best part of my job right now is that I get to see a whole lot of good in everybody. I get to see these volunteers coming to the table, our incredible supporters coming to the table, our board of directors. I get to, I see that there is so much good and I see the good in people coming forward and coming to the table to be a part of a solution. So that is absolutely hands down the best part of what I get to do now. Walking into this field though, um, at the outset and every step along the way up until this point, you know, I, I would get the question of, Oh my gosh, how can you do that work? How, how are you doing it? Why are you doing it? It must be exhausting and hard and all of those things. And it is, but my answer is always, I I don't know, uh, but, but Mm -hmm. someone has to do it. And as long as I am feeling emotionally and mentally and physically capable of of stepping into that and intellectually uh, brave enough to step into it and be that person, I'm, I'm going to continue to do it because someone has to. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't know what it is that that reinforces that and reignites it or keeps it lit at a minimum inside, but it hasn't... Um, and there's been moments where I've had to step away and certainly uh, create some space, but um, I can't ever not, like I said, not ever... Uh, fully step away and, and not know that it's there. And yeah, I mean, I, I do think that the the mental health and the self-care and all of that is certainly something that is always on my mind. It's always on my mind for the people that work at CASA, the volunteers, the folks that are really putting themselves on the front lines. Um, I'm trying to be better at role modeling that myself um, because I think we tend um, as mothers, as leaders, as you know, um, powerful ladies, you just, you know, you just pack it in and you keep going because what is the alternative? Right. And mm-hmm. I've certainly done a fair amount of that, but, um, I've been fortunate to be able to also, um, uh, we have an, an incredible, uh, member of our board who runs a fitness studio. And, um, one of the ways that he gives back to the community is by, um, allowing certain nonprofit leaders an opportunity to benefit from working out there um, because he feels like it's a way for the leader to mm-hmm. address themselves and get themselves right. And that if they're right, there's going to be that, you know, sort of trickle down effect yeah. everywhere else. And I have told him repeatedly um, that I think that I've been able to last as long in the role as I have uh, in no small order because of that benefit that he's offered. And it's made a huge difference. So physical exercise and, mm-hmm. and definitely. Um, shutting things off when you can, which is not always very often. (laughs) (laughs) How about you, Nancy? I'll tell me the question specifically. Reagan did such a great job. I'm I'm like complete. (laughs) Um, Have you, how often have you had to expand your willingness to step into your Mm. bravery to be a part of CASA and to be an advocate? Wow, Reagan, last year. <laughs> um, I was called a couple 
I don't know, three, four days a week ahead of time to um, to speak at a celebration of children instead of do the video that we had recorded. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a talk in front of 250 people. And I would, I, and all I did was say, yes, of course, no problem. And I remember Reagan calling me up. She says, I'm so sorry. This is so short notice. Are you okay? And I'm like, no, I'm fine. This is great. I'm born for this. I'm doing this and you don't have to worry about a thing. So I was super, put my big girl panties on <laughs> and got to it. <laughs> so, I mean, I, that's my most recent um, being really brave. But in the role of it as an advocate, I think being brave is, you know, being with a teenager that's not yours, you know, and, and being willing to uh, be vulnerable to them and listen to their stories and not respond in a way that elicits more anxiety. <laughs> Um, but to just be that calm person, um, you know, that that happened quite a bit for me. And um, I think you've really got to be um, brave to uh, take on those conversations authentically instead of just kind of glide over them, um, which is what we did. And we really worked through a lot of that. Um, so those are two immediate responses I can think of, Kara, that really yeah, and then I'm, we're going to have a celebration of children uh, gala on August 27th. Everybody's in, that's listening is invited to, and I'll be chairing that with my friend Karen Jordan. And it is going to be a great night of celebrating what we do best, which is children. So that's yeah. my next, latest brave thing in the last few weeks. <laughs> <laughs> Endless bravery. And she, I mean, honestly, Nancy killed at this event in September when she got up there. And I just, I wanted to make sure she was okay when this was this change of plans. And she, I mean, it was like a mic drop moment. She said, <laughs> I was born for this. And I was like, okay, you have got this. And man, I, I mean, I don't know that we'll ever have a moment quite like that ever again. It was so spectacular. Mm. Just amazing, Nancy. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you for sourcing that because you really gave me the power to get the job done and, and really being my support team on that mm. whole deal. That was, it was great. It was a great evening. And I think people really got what CASA does, who volunteers are and what the difference we do make yeah. for our kids. And I just, yeah. So thank you for the opportunity. Love, love, love it. And for me, it's such a highlight of, you know, you being uncomfortable for five days to prep because you wanted to make this the best speech people had heard to move people to take actions to support these kids you taking those five days to be uncomfortable created huge results. And, and I think sometimes we get so nervous to be uncomfortable when how long we have to be uncomfortable is actually very small to yeah. cause Agreed. that the impact we want. The other byproduct um, of that, Kara, was that Liz got to be at the celebration and she actually spoke in front of the same group after I spoke. And, you know, that's brave. I've got a yeah. foster kid on stage speaking her story and sharing mm -hmm. and acknowledging and being grateful to everybody that's there. Makes me want to cry right now. <laughs> you know, yeah. that that was the really unique thing to put in her life that she's mm -hmm. going to be sourced by for a long time. Well, it's it's bravery, begetting bravery, right? It's you mentioned um, Katanjay Brown Jackson, who's you know the Supreme Court nominee, seeing what she's going through right now in this approval process. It's just making me be like, okay, 
She's at a 20. We all got to rise up at least two. We got to make that a little closer because there's the gap. You know, like I, I literally posted a thing on TikTok, my second ever, because I was so fired up about this. I'm like, she needs a referee. I volunteer. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, but it's, it's, you know, you, we, you realize like for me seeing, um, Justice Jackson, like, um, looking on TV anyway, like she's sitting there by herself and being so poised and so calm. It really makes me want to come back to how can all of us who are committed to big things, who are being brave every day, who are, you know, being heart led in what we do, how do we remember that everyone's around us? Because like, there's so much more power in standing side by side with people than feeling like it's just you on that stage. (laughs) Yeah. It's true. Well, for everyone who is moved and inspired and wants to support, donate, volunteer, become an advocate, where can everybody go and how can they support and follow? Absolutely. Well, they can, uh, first and foremost, they should go to our website, uh, casaoc.org. Um, they should absolutely come to support Nancy at the event and, and CASA in general on August 27th at the Marriott Newport Beach it's going to, the new, the new, it's no longer Marriott. Is it Vea? That's what it's called. Vea, right? right. It's very spicy. Very awesome. Yeah, it's supposed to be beautiful. Beautiful. We have a series of events and, and gatherings throughout the year. Um, we have some really amazing supporters that just are very, very fun people. Always making sure we've got something fun going on. We've got a pickleball tournament coming up on June 4th at the Newport Beach Tennis and Pickleball Club. And we do a holiday luncheon event every December as well, which is really, really beautiful and special. It's a fashion show and luncheon. Um, but if you want to become a, an advocate, which is really, you know, the, the, the biggest need that we have, um, and to, to open yourself up to the training and to potentially being matched with a child in the foster care system, someone who you can you know, advocate for and develop a relationship with that's, that's our number one need. Um, and you would just go to our website, um, casaoc.org and you can, um, uh, sign up for an informational session. That would be the first step. And then make sure that it's, you know, all the things you think it uh, it might be, get some questions answered. And and then uh, you can sign up for training. We offer trainings every other month. So we're in, tra- um, we're in a finishing up a training right now. Um, we'll have a swear in in April and we'll start a new class in May. Awesome. And, and for people who are curious, is there an age limit uh, yeah. top or bottom of that scale to be an advocate. Yeah. Thank you for that. I tell people all the time, what we're looking for are people who are over 21 because yes, you do have to be 21 years of age to be a volunteer over 21, you know, going to clear a background check. That's pretty important, but mm-hmm. open heart, open mind. You don't need to have any background or experience in social work and psychology and in the law. None of it. We will, we will walk you through uh, that um, process and give you training and um, much of our program staff uh, really is these coaches, these case supervisors that we have that really ultimately act as, uh, as a coach to all of our volunteers and stand alongside them as they navigate the process and um, help them through their advocacy and answer questions and, and offer encouragement. So um, we'll provide the rest. Open heart, open mind. And, um, we'll and you don't need it. to be a parent, right? You can just show up. No. As- mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. It's just a relationship. You don't have to have children of your own or particularly, you know, aspire to, to not at all. You don't need to aspire to be a parent of, to anyone else. 
Um, uh, it's really just about developing that relationship and that, that mentorship and advocacy piece. Yeah. Well, it has been such a pleasure to meet you, Reagan, and to have you and Nancy, um, a yes to me, a yes to the Powerful Ways podcast. Uh, thank you, Nancy, for being a stand that this conversation happened. Um, and I just really want to acknowledge both of you for the work that you're doing for the people who need it most in this community and for inspiring so many people. I, I really can't wait to hear the impact that this conversation has um, and to see, again, the power that you guys have continue to multiply and expand. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Kara. Thank you for having us and for all you're doing to highlight powerful ladies throughout the community. It's wonderful. All the links to connect with Reagan, Nancy, and Casa are in our show notes at thepowerfulladies.com. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening and leave us a rating and review. It is so critical so that this podcast has more visibility and our guests get their story heard by more people. Come join us on Instagram at Powerful Ladies. And if you're looking to connect directly with me, please visit caraduffy.com or follow me on Instagram at Kara underscore Duffy. I'll be back next week with a brand new episode and a brand new amazing guest. Until then, I hope you're taking on being powerful in your life. Go be awesome and up to something you love.